Set aside your fantasy and sci-fi doorstoppers. Sometimes big ideas come in small packages. This is Word Less. So um, you're going to be really proud of me. And here's why. I did not prepare anything for this. Yes. Except reading it. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, and what is this? What is this? This is Lathe of Heaven by Ursula Le Guin. It won a Hugo Award and was published in 1979. The year that the beautiful Allison was born. <laughs> that is great. So I have a question for you before we actually start talking about the book. Okay. Before... You read The Lathe of Heaven. Did you know what a lathe was? I'm trying to remember when I first read it. Yes, probably because I read it when the kids were little. So I would have known what a lathe was because I, um, I mean, I come from a bunch of redneck farmer hicks. So <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in the city, but I'm just saying that my, the rest of my family are just, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. I was just curious. Go ahead. Proceed. Do you know what a sling blade is? <laughs> um, I remember <laughs> I so yes, but you know when I learned that? From the I movie? Mean, I, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so go ahead and make fun of me. <laughs> no, it's fine. Just you know, a lathe is a sling blade, basically. Yeah. It's a reap it's a way to reap things. Yeah. So I'm going to give a brief summary of this book. But before we, I do that, Mark, did you like it? it was yes and no. Yeah, we could talk about it more when we uh, get into the story. Well, what did you think? So I... I I remember really loving it when I first read it, and this is my second time reading it. And I, reading it with a more critical eye, I had some of the same issues I had with it, with um, remote control. Interesting. No, uh, that save that. Well, yeah, let's talk about yeah. that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's very interesting. Kay. Can you uh, explain a little bit? Like, as I recall, I believe your issues with remote control was. Well, part of it was just too many ideas and not are not well crafted enough for you, kind of in terms of language structure. Yeah, yeah, it's it, very similar. It in okay, so I can't go into it anymore. I can't until we summarize it. Okay, Dude has magic dreams. <laughs> His magic dreams change the world around him. Other dude starts making him dream certain other weird things. Lawyer lady does. (laughs) Her name's Heather. She's great. Um, And other dude is Heber, and main dream dude is George. Go ahead. (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. Stuff happens. And. George stops doing magic dreams. 
That's basically the summary of the book. Wow. <laughs> we get, aliens, that, we get yeah. like changing everybody to gray. We get nuclear holocaust. We get not nuclear ho- holocaust. It's yeah. So if we had a Razzie for like worst, like, you know, summaries of books. Oh, like, fuck you're, you. You're, <laughs> contender right now. That's... See, this is why I should, in fact, prepare. <laughs> yeah, probably. Sorry. Um, but anyway, so go. She, she See, explores go ahead, a lot of. <sighs> go ahead. She explores a lot of different ideas. Um, and it's kind of hard how to see how she would do what she's doing without having all these many different ideas in the book. But there's like this whole, what's the name of the guy? Peter Egler, who wrote the population bomb. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this whole thing with that idea. And there's this thing with about racial reconciliation, I think. Mm-hmm. And there's this thing about peace and what does peace mean between nations? And then there's aliens and I don't know. There's just a lot going on and I feel like it would be better if it was there was less going on. But I don't know how she would do that. Because I, I I understand what you're saying. I understand what you're saying, but l- let me see if I can clarify a little bit. Because I, I I think that that you're saying, I think your issue is similar to my issue with the book. Okay. So let me see if I can articulate kind of my issue. So first of all, let me say this. It is it's well written. It's short. And actually, I thought the story structure itself was kind of interesting. So George. What happens is he has what he calls effective dreams. So if he has a dream that feels too real to him, it actually becomes real. But the only person who knows that reality has changed is him because the prior world only exists in his mind. For everybody else, the world has always been that way. Right. So he, he goes to somebody to try and stop himself from having these dreams. And the person he runs into first doesn't believe him, and then when he figures out it's real, he decides, yeah, I'm going to actually control the dreams to create a better world. And things keep on getting essentially worse and better at the same time, depending on your point of view. So, um, it, wh- one of the things I really like about it uh, is that it, it addresses, so there's a very famous um, economist, his name is Thomas Sowell, and one of the things that he says is there are no solutions. There are, there are only trade-offs. And that's yes. kind of what this story is doing. It is. It's, uh, I, I was just getting ready to say, his, basically, his effective dreams are like the monkey paw of dreams. But you said it better. Thomas Sowell said it better. <laughs> yes, Thomas Sowell said it better. But anyway, so... My issue with the, I kind of want to give that as background to kind of say what, through that story structure, what the author seems to be driving at is basically to have a polemic and to say, so this school of philosophy, I don't like, and let me show you why. And I don't like 
this school of philosophy for this reason, and I like this school of philosophy for this reason. Like, and to me, the issue with the book is, for example, unlike Canticle for Leibowitz, which in some ways can be heavy-handed, but otherwise is fairly subtle, there's nothing subtle about the Lady of Heaven. It's kind of in your face about it, which is fine if that's what you like, but it's just, it just didn't hit me quite right. So I don't know if that's what you were getting at, but that was kind of my issue with the book. And I can give you some examples. Please do. So, for example, the main protagonist in the story is George Orr. She was I know, and you... Go ahead. <laughs> Sorry. You, Go ahead. you said that you thought it was a reference to George Orwell, and it might be. But if I, it is, it's not done well. Well, no, well, because to me, she's satirizing George Orwell because the main character, uh, George, the main character George Orr, is essentially a Buddhist or a Taoist, right? That that's right. kind of kind his of yeah. Whole, yeah. That's basically his whole shtick of I'm going to live kind of with equanimity and kind of things happen, and I just want to go with the flow. And people perceive him as passive, even though he's not really passive, but that's how he's perceived. George Orwell kind of wasn't, and his books kind of were all like, you know, a critique of, you know, socialist structures or authoritarian societies or what have you, right? And it seems that that the author's taking the stance of, yeah, okay, I get it, you don't like like these leftist leaning structures, I'm going to satirize you and show you all the ways in which the way you like societies, you would perceive a society to be is absolutely wrong too. That's kind of like the George Orr part of it. Okay. The other part of it, Haber, which is the antagonist of the story, the guy controlling the dreams, you look at him, you go, well, wow, he's basically an amoral sociopath. Kind of. But not really. I mean, yeah, he's actually, right. He's not it, really. Yeah, he's not a he's, bad person in the way that you would normally think of as a bad person because he means well. Well, he, he yeah, well, he he was he would be what what would fall under what's generally called the positivist philosophy, which is that he believes that at the end of the day, you know. Logic and the betterment of uh, the betterment of society is a triumph for all. That's kind of like so. You have Haber who is suggests to George, "Hey, why don't we have a world with a world without war?" So George Orr has an effective dream with a world without war, but the only way George's mind can envision a world without war is for humanity to unite against a non-human, a non-human threat. Therefore, right. all of a sudden, aliens exist. So, and every time that happens, the world always gets a little bit worse, right? Like the, or, or better, it depends. Well, <laughs> it, it depends. But the one thing, the, the two things that stay constant throughout is that George Orr, is basically stuck stuck in a dead end, do nothing place in his life, and Haber increasingly becomes more powerful in each successive world. The president says the same too, though. 
Just saying. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember what the president's name is, but it was a weird but thing. Ha- but Haber continuously improves his lot in life. Right? right. He does. Absolutely. So, and, and Haber never directly says, and I get better. But because th- these are George's dreams, and Haber is essentially controlling the dreams, each time, and Haber, what well, one of the things that's cleverly done because George is dreaming it and dreams are essentially irrational, he's equating power to Haber because Haber's controlling the dreams and therefore Haber requires more power as the story goes on. Right. So, so. Uh, here's the thing that absolutely charms me about this story. Well, uh, I I grew up in Portland. <laughs> I live in Portland. This story takes place in Portland. And watching how the world like I know all these streets. I know Ankeny. I know Mount Hood and Mount St. Helens. Like I know all these things. And watching the world morph around landmarks I know is just a really fun thing about this story. Not that you can't enjoy it without you know living in Portland, but that's the thing that makes me want to just stand up and cheer when I read this book. That's there's always some, there's always something special about reading a book where you, you know, the place intimately, to, uh, isn't it? Right. Right. And, and Ursula Le Guin is a Portlander. So she knows Portland intimately as well. It's not like when you watch, when you watch, um, Goonies. So, if you are familiar with Oregon, it takes place in, oh, geez, I'm blanking on the name of the town. Anyway, they're in, dear Lord. The point is, is the, the geography doesn't work if you're familiar with the Oregon coast at all. Gotcha. It Whereas... Did, uh... I was just going to ask you, did, Ur- did Ursula Le Guin capture the feel of Portland in the book to you? I think so, especially at least Portland at that time. Portland's very different now in a lot of mm-hmm. respects. Um, but definitely the feeling of Portland in the early, when I was growing up. One right. of the things that is hilariously wrong is that she has Portland at a population of 2 million in 2002, I think is when the book takes place. Um, we aren't even at 2 million in the, the whole area, <laughs> like, like the broader gotcha. metropolitan area. And she has like 7 million people living on the east coast or on the east side of the mountains. And uh, yeah, no. There's like a hundred thousand people in the Bend area. It's just yeah, I mean, it's yeah very well, very it funny. Also, <laughs> it, it was also a pretty dystopic society too. That, that, that yeah. she was. I'm just saying, with, like the like the growth, like how everyone had ten babies. <laughs> yeah. So it's just kind of funny, um, and of course Mount St. Helens blows up in May of 1980, mm-hmm. and it's. Mount Hood that blows up in the book. And I just find that just a fun, interesting thing about the story. But let's get back to the story. What do you think about the aliens? Well, wait, 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 wait. Before, while we're ta- on the topic of the book, that, that kind of like 
landmarks and geographic parts of the book. One thing I like about this book that I like about all older science fiction that I absolutely love, and she nails it, is when they predict something, especially when it's a near future book, which is what this book is, where they predict something that's going to happen in the future, and they get it absolutely right. So Ursula Gwynn in 1999 is picturing, there's a whole book, like, it's picturing an overpopulated dystopian society where there's authoritarian governments everywhere, regulates all kinds of things. You have to, like, you know, you're eating rationed foods, everybody's malnourished, whatever, right? But Mm -hmm. a big driver for all of this, climate change. The world is going through massive upheaval, or has gone through massive upheaval due to climate change, which I thought was, like, you nailed it. I, I I love it when these older books really nail an aspect of society that's like, yep, that's exactly right. You got it right. So Yeah, that was really interesting because a lot of um a lot of the predictions around climate change back in that era were about global cooling as opposed to warming. And she that's talks right. about global warming. That's, that's the exactly only thing right. that she gets right. <laughs> no, you know, look, and, and <laughs> but it's good, and it's it's really well handled, and it's interesting how the book deals with it. And back to how Georgia's mind fixes things. It, it they're talking about how there's all this overpopulation, uh-huh. and so he dreams about a plague that kills off six billion people. Yeah. Or something like that, which is also kind of kind of prescient, because that would yeah, probably well, be what it would take. <laughs> well, he did predict. He did. She did predict a plague. That that that's for sure. So, yeah. No, I mean that that's. But look, if you think about it, I mean, can I? If you connect the dots, Haber, who's living at the end result, so he's ends oriented. He wants to see the the result. He doesn't care too much about the process. So he's like, wouldn't the world be better if there were just less people in it? And in a world that's overpopulated, he's right. It would be better if there were less people, less resources to manage and all these things, right? But he doesn't really care how it happens, right? So George is the one who has to dream up something. And the reality is, how are you going to vastly depopulate like an overpopulated society? It's going to have to take something grotesque. Yeah. Play really or <laughs> something for real, right? So, Nuclear war, exactly. So George, An <laughs> right? So George is basically told, "Hey, wouldn't it be great if there's less people on the Earth?" So he's like, "Yeah, it would be great." And then his mind starts connecting the dots as to, "Well, how would it happen?" And he'll go through the same process we just discussed: lands on the plague or a plague, people die off. And Haber's like, wow, man, it's great there's less people here. Man, George, it's such a shame that you're such an awful human being that you thought of it, that, that you thought of depopulating that way. But you know what? The results are fine. So that's kind of like the whole like critique of the positive approach. I like the end result, but I don't want to get my hands dirty with, with, with how we achieve it. And George, the, the Taoist, has to accept the burden of the guilt, but because of his philosophy, he somehow able to uh, manages to accept that burden of guilt. Yeah, when he's talking to Heather, 
I believe it was when he was first hiring her. Yep. Um, he says, I have no right to change things. And he has no right to make me do it. Or something along those lines. And so. Right. I mean. You, you kind of get where George is coming from. Like he's the one who has to make things better. Well, if you and think see, about I, it. And it's, I'm sorry. No, but if you think about it, I mean, like, look, it, it's a central tenet of a lot of, like, you know, moral uh, conundrums. So, you know, let's say you're a leader of a corporation and you want to make, I don't know, some gadget that'll make people's lives better. So you tell your employees, I want to make this gadget, go ahead and accomplish it. But you're not in the in the day-to-day details of it. Well, the people who run the place, the day-to-day details, they do it, but it, it like cause some environmental damage or whatever. So you as the like owner, like, well, I have this great gadget and kind of wash your hands in it of the environmental damage you may have caused. That's kind of what this book addresses. That's kind of the moral conundrum that, that you face. Well, and it's the, you cannot take any action without having it have impact in some way. And sometimes those impacts are not ways that you intend them to be. Mm-hmm. Like there's no, there's no way that Haber wanted a plague to kill off six billion people. That's not what he wanted. Um, it's but he wasn't sad. But look, but and, and this gets to the whole positive approach. What's more important? And, and this is a genuine moral question that that people have. Yes. What's more important, the end result, or how you, or is it more important how you do it, regardless of the result that's reached? And there really isn't necessarily, I don't know. I mean, there's a certain pragmatic look at that sort of dilemma and there's, it's, there's always a balancing act. I mean, that's all I can say. That's my answer. Huh. So See, I, I'm on the process side. Good I'm, I'm definitely more on the process side, but the, the thing is, is that even if you're doing the right things, my point is much more that, Anything, any process you go through, there's going to be things that you don't intend to happen that may be negative, even if you're making good moral decisions. Does that make sense? I do agree, but the the, the Haber view is good results from bad uh, consequences. Do you think Haber's a bad guy? Yes. I do too, actually, because he... He's definitely trying to acquire power because he thinks that he's the smartest person in the room and will be able to wield power the best. Right. And one of the inherent truths of power is once you get power, you want to acquire more power. And the more power you acquire, the more the cliche is true. Power corrupts. You just want more of it, and you believe that that you're justified in in getting it through any means possible. What do you think about? So Heather finds George in a cabin, and he hasn't slept for like three days because he's afraid to go to sleep. She gets him to go to sleep, and she has him dream that Haber is going to be honest with him, and that 
the aliens won't be on the moon anymore. So what do you think about the consequences of those two things? <laughs> um, I actually want to, well, before I answer that, well, I'll answer the question, but I want you to start thinking about a question I have for you, which is, what do you think about Heather? Period, full stop. Okay. Uh, so... Be careful what you wish for is what I feel about the consequences of Heather getting George to dream that because the aliens come down to Earth um, or, excuse me, have been down on Earth for quite a while and Haber is basically the ruler of the... Basically no, they the come down Earth's to Earth. Ruler. They wake up to the invasion. The sirens and right. the invasion. Right. right. And... Um, Haber being honest... Huh? Oh, sorry. No, but the, and the aliens are. Anyways, they end up not being the. Because he dreams the them of not being. Yeah, right. Like, yeah, he dream, has right. to dream that. Yeah. No, what about Haber being honest with him? Uh, with, honest with George? It's hard to put that. I've, I've been trying to find ways to put this into words. George deserves the honesty. I'm not sure he. He was never emotionally capable of handling the honesty. Hmm. Hmm. What do you think? The thing I like, because there's a very different shift uh, in their relationship once he, Haber starts being honest with him. I, I actually really like it because George feels like he's crazy. And Haber is encouraging that. And once Haber starts being honest with him, you're not crazy. Your dreams really do. You have magic dream powers. Um, at least George is able to cope with the fact that he's not crazy. He's not just imagining it. And mm -hmm. I think it helps him get him to the point where he can dream that he doesn't dream effectively anymore. Right. That's, I mean... George is kind of an annoying person. I don't particularly like him. So you were going to ask me what I think about Heather. Heather is the only like, really, really, truly likable character. With any screen time. So here's my... It's kind of a two-part question. The first one's simple, why? And let me put a little bit of context on that. So throughout the realities... The one person who changes the most and radically is Heather. Because Heather is half black, half Caucasian. And then when the world is dreamed of as gray, where there's no such thing as races, she, she doesn't exist. She, like, she literally doesn't exist in one reality. Then another reality, she exists, but she's more docile than a uh, like, docile temperament. And George ends up falling in love with that version of Heather. And then there's, you know, the original Heather, which is very sharp-edged and aggressive. And, like, that Heather is the most malleable person throughout the story. And I wonder if that says something as well. I'll let you answer. I'm sorry that that was long-winded. I would say it says more about George than it does about Heather. And it does say a little bit about Heather in the sense that she exists in a world where there's a very specific dynamic. B 
between men and women and between races. And so in certain circumstances, a character like her would just not exist. Does that make sense? It does. She ultimately is the hero here because she rescues George from, even when she's in her docile form, she goes to bat for George. And when George is being his, when he's being kind of wishy-washy, she's there to back him up. Even when she's in her more docile form. The one where she's married to him. Mm-hmm. I just think she's the hero. <laughs> so I 100% agree with you that I think she's the hero of the story. This is the part of the story that I actually genuinely love the most because, and maybe I'm completely wrong, but in my personal view, this is just a brilliant bit of storytelling because this is Ursula K. Le Guin going, look, the woman is the hero of the story, and what's changing is the male gaze on her. She's changing based on the, on the men's perception of her. But she, she's actually the hero. Like, her personality and her point of view is really the constant that changes the world for the better. That's my take on it. I mean, so I have issues with the whole concept of the male gaze in general. Uh, but what I would say is that... Look, wh- whether or not you agree with it, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that... No, I, no, I think you're right. I, we all have... A, I guess I would just say we all have a gaze. <laughs> I, don't, no. I don't know how to explain how I feel about it, but... Okay, no, I absolutely... I don't disagree with you on that. I, I mean, you're right. I think it's indisputable that, especially like in the time period that Ursula K. Le Guin was writing in, the dominant gay so to speak was the male one because it right. was a much more male dominated society yeah, so 1979 yeah it was 1979 <laughs> that's right so i mean that that's not a value judgment that's just a statement of fact i think that that's what she was kind of critiquing as well and making the point of these men with these immense powers all they're doing is making the world worse and worse and worse and what ends up saving everything is the woman yeah, well, women would just fuck things up in an entirely different way. <laughs> but not Heather. She, she, she does a good oh, job with this. Speaking of Heather, I have a quote. So the story has three main POVs. And one time when we're in Heather's head, she thinks about how she's a lawyer and how she wished she mm-hmm. hadn't become a lawyer. And she, mm-hmm. she said she had a, a sneaky, sly, shy, saying, say, quote, Oh, no, it's a word I can't say. <laughs> Personality. You did and this to yourself. <laughs> I, do it, I did it to myself. And she had French diseases of the soul. And I just love that. She had French diseases of the soul. Yeah. I can't I say ennui, it. by the way. <laughs> ennui. No, but uh, well, what a great way to kind of like, you know, kind of speak to your kind of artistic side or your yeah uh, mm-hmm. i like that i like that that was very nice being a lawyer can be tough like the some of the cliches are true when people say that the law can be a jealous mistress i mean they're not wrong so there's something to be said about that do you have french diseases of the soul i'm on a book podcast what do you think <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, um, do you have any quotes you want to share? Any last thoughts? We should start wrapping things up. You know, I- I'll say I-, I thought the ending was satisfying. I- this this was a book of its time. I'm not sure I would rank it as a timeless book, but I think it's a time capsule of kind of a point of view from this time period. I think it's a, a worthwhile read. Yeah, I would say the same thing. It's not timeless. It is a time cap capsule, 100%. I would say I would read it in the context of a certain period in science fiction um, history, but very worthwhile because she is a beautiful writer and she has ways of capturing moments that are just really cool. I would probably go read Wizard of Earthsea before I would read this. But I do enjoy this story quite a lot. No, well, look, and, and we really didn't talk about Ursula that much. But what I'll say is this, is that Ursula could write the phone book and I would read it. I would read it. I mean, she's a towering giant of fantasy and science fiction. And she's just a beautiful writer. She is. I think I've read pretty much everything she's written. Maybe yeah. not all of it, but pretty much most of it for sure. I love her. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm not sure what else there is to say besides the fact of she's one of the greatest writers of science fiction and fantasy. She she just is. There's, I mean, her influence on the genre is indisputable. And there's a whole separate conversation we can have about why uh, female authors, especially from her generation, just seemingly just don't get the recognition that I believe that they rightfully deserve. Probably true. Well, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Our music is by John Worthy. I'm Allison, and that guy's Mark. Good night. Bye, guys. (laughs) 